Trying to catch me riding dirty On the next pack episode Derek, there's so many songs that we don't have to sing anymore Hi Derek Hey Chris, how's it going? It's going well, and you? Uh, good it's interesting to be on this side of the table. Yeah, the tables, they have, well, the tables <laughs> didn't turn, but we turned. Um, so we're here. We're recording a podcast. Uh, in theory, I'll be recording a bunch of them moving on. So uh, I'm very excited to start this whole thing. Yeah. As I said in the last episode, I think uh, everybody's in capable hands here. You'll do a great job. And uh, I'm excited to hear where you take the show and where other ThoughtBot voices come along and, and are involved. I'm excited for all of that. Well, I'm, I'm honored to be here, and I will do my best to maintain the... Uh, the high level of quality that you and Sean have set up for the past many, many, 160 or so episodes? 164. 164. All right. Um, well, what are we talking about today, Derek? Well, totally apropos of nothing, I had an idea in my head of talking about beginnings and ends. I don't necessarily want to talk about them on the grander scale, because I think Sean and I did that, but more on the everyday scale from our actual work, which is what this podcast is about, right? That sounds good. Uh, so let's get back to that. I want to talk about what do you do at the start of a project or the start of a job for folks out there who aren't consulting, right? What do you do at the end of a project or the end of a job? Mm-hmm. Things like that. So let me start by asking you. Because we do consulting, we are used to beginning uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit and ending quite a bit, at least in a project context. So what are some things you like to do when you start a project? I'm very fond of this topic because I I find that we often are at clients and we seem to have specific interests, specific things that we're looking towards that the rest of the team may not be, um, specific areas that we really want to make sure are in place. We recognize that we're going to be rotating on and off. And um, I think some people might view us as having possibly the wrong focus. Because when you're on a team for forever, these things are less important. You've already done the onboarding and you don't see offboarding as a thing that's going to happen. But... I think our view, or at least my view, would be that new people are going to join your team. Teams are going to be split up. People are going to rotate between projects within an organization. Uh, Ideally, you'll be hiring at some point, growing, et cetera, et cetera. So these are things that are, I think everyone should act like they're a consultant that might rotate off a project in the next four months, something Mm. like that. So with that as the lens, let's talk about a few of the things. Um, I think one of the things that we push pretty hard for is a bin setup, Mm -hmm. um, which is a particular script that lives in the repository. It is basically a self-contained executable that will do all the stuff necessary to get the project up and running. So on a Rails project, that typically means bundle install, let's get all the gems set up, let's set up a database, let's do any sort of DB seeding or dev prime or other tasks that might set us up for development data, uh, and just make sure the app is ready to run. And ideally, again, that's that's a perfectly self-contained thing, can run on its own and just get you set up. Yeah. I mean, that's something I think that has immediate appeal to everybody. It's like, oh, I can just run this script and it works. Great. I do think that often I find myself spending a lot of time getting that to work, mm-hmm. right? And people are like, why are you spending all this time? It's like, well, because there's three more ThoughtBot folks coming on this project next week and yep. they're going to need to start. And also you have a new hire next week and wouldn't it right. be nice if all this was ironed out, that kind of thing. And there's a certain amount, I think, that um, certainly when a project is small and new, you should be able to run a script and you're just ready to go. Mm-hmm. As things get more complex... It gets harder to do that, or as your environments become more varied, right? If you're in an environment where you can assume that all of your developers are running OS X, or as it's called now, Mac OS. Mac OS. uh, 
if you are in that type of environment and you can assume homebrew or something, then mm -hmm. you can script some different parts of it. But if you're in an environment where some people are on Linux and some people are on OS 10, then you have to like, okay, so we got to have a switch in here that says like, if you're on this, then maybe we assume homebrew. But if right. you're over here, we have to do apt install or apt get and whatever it is. I don't know. Something Depends, like that. Pac-Man or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yum so there's lots of number. things that you start to have to consider. And then you start to go down the road of like, oh, well, uh, Docker. Docker's the same for everybody, yeah. so let's just do Docker. Um, Have you worked on a Docker project? Yeah, that way lies madness. Um, <laughs> I also did not enjoy my Docker experiences. Could be great. Just, Again, caveats always, but If yeah. you need it, I'm sure it's great because you get used to it and you build the tooling around it that you need. But when you're used to working on a local development project and all of a sudden all the things that you are used to being are used to doing debugging-wise don't work the same mm -hmm. way or bundle installs take forever because it rebuilds your entire machine or something like that. Those are huge downsides. So don't jump. To, don't don't take this advice to uh, unify your setup or to simplify your setup to the extreme of uh, harming your day to day productivity by saying like, oh well, clearly we need Docker because that's the same for everybody, and you can just download this thing right. and run all these commands and you'll be fine. The time may come when you want to cross that bridge, but it doesn't doesn't have to be today. <laughs> yep. I think one thing that I've seen you do on a few projects, uh, and this may be part of our handbook or guides at this point, but uh, including the bin setup script in CI, such that the bin setup script. If you're not running it on the regular, it's going to decay. It's going to get out of sync with the app. It may no longer run for some reason, but you don't find that out until two months later when the next person joins the team. But if you instrument that as part of CI, that's how CI does its setup, then you ensure that it at least runs in that environment and that sort of fresh install. Yeah, and I, it's become more complicated of late. Like our, our CI of choice around here is generally Circle CI. And in the beginning, there was Circle CI 1.0, <laughs> and it was great. It ran things, and uh, you know sometimes it was a little slow because you had one thing and it ran ran your test in one container or whatever. Yep. And then, uh, sometimes you wanted some more configurability, and so they wanted they added more ways to configure things, and we we end up with Circle CI 2.0, which is great. It's fantastic. You can do all sorts of things. You can replicate basically any build scheme that you want with Circle CI 2, and you can get pretty good performance because you can you can decide how you want to parallelize things and i've never found a good way maybe because i just have not invested enough time but how to work bin setup into that like i don't i don't want both so uh, you're, if i have two workers i don't want two workers running bin setup because can you not have a serial task that then gets I think it, it paralyzed like it forks the parallel processes after that serial I think you task can. Okay. and it's just a matter of like it's all done in yaml so you have to like do i have my indentation right is this the right key <laughs> uh, you have to find the right articles on circle ci support to figure out yep. what, what and it, it is. is still newer i want to say such that like i feel like i'm solving things and typically when i type something into the internet i want there to be a very highly upvoted stack overflow answer mm -hmm. and it feels like like there are a lot of the another person has asked this question, but no one has yet responded. That's right. Or they responded the with like a pointer to an image that you're a Docker image you're supposed to use on Circle CI that no longer exists. Right. Or isn't the right one. And you have to figure out like, oh, what does this mean? Like, yeah, like I it took me for a while to figure out like, oh, I want uh, Ruby, blah, blah, blah with JavaScript with browsers or mm -hmm. something like that yeah. as my base image. And it's like, <laughs> right, oh, okay. right. And all this stuff used to just work, <laughs> and now it it doesn't just work. Uh, uh, it feels like Heroku when Heroku went through growing pains at one point where definitively at some point a Rails app get push Heroku, the magic would happen and your Rails app would then be running in mm -hmm. production. And then some stuff sort of changed under the hood. They were changing it, making it a polyglot platform, et cetera, et cetera. But it meant that Rails apps didn't just run. There were things you had to do, other steps you had to take. And I think they've since refocused and fixed that they've gotten over those growing pains some but. of that wasn't even necessarily their fault like it didn't used to be part of the considerations when rails was doing a release of like how does this impact heroku 
They just which they just sort assumed, of makes sense. They just assumed that, or they would knowingly know that, like, yeah, uh, asset compilation is gonna screw up Heroku in some way. Or as a more recent example, um, active file attachment, active storage, action storage, active, active storage. storage. I think <laughs> active storage <laughs> has some uh, problems with Heroku, and we can link to some blog posts about oh, that in the show notes. So I think that. To some extent, there was a combination of yes, Heroku became more polyglot, and and now like Rails support was something that was done alongside PHP support, alongside Node support, mm-hmm. alongside all these other support. But it also became more flexible in interesting ways, and I do think that they, much like Circle CI, I guess, became more flexible in interesting ways. But I do think that they did go through that period, like you talked about, of like, okay, how do we get back to that yep. thing we had where you could just get push a Rails app and it yep. worked. And um, you know, I know a number of folks on that team that work on the Ruby build pack and things like that. And right. uh, that's definitely their part of their focus is like, how do I make sure this is easy? And it's still simple. There's actually a tweet out recently. I think it was from Patrick McKenzie who talked about how like it used to be that you were just like a git push away from getting things running. And now things are so much more complicated and it doesn't work that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And then there was a reply or a quote to that tweet that was like, it's still that easy if you're using Rails. Just yeah. use boring technology. And it's weird to see that we're in, yeah. like, Rails is in its boring technology phase, I guess. Yeah. But maybe it is. Like, when I came here five years ago, mm-hmm. Rails was still cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did it to do more Rails. Like, I was excited. I was like, I want to do more Rails, and I can do that by working here. Yeah, I had searched around languages and frameworks, and I came to Rails, and I was like, oh, this, this. I actually avoided Rails for a little while because I thought it was... Hipster is the term that I'll use, but uh, I chosen Python as Python and Django because I was like, that seems to be more serious. And I think it was possibly just like why and Chunky Bacon and those sort of things were prominent in the community at that point. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like Ruby and Rails were a little less serious. And then I kept hearing about it and hearing about it. And eventually I was like, I have to take a look at this thing. Mm-hmm. Looked at Rails. I was like, oh, oh, that's that's excellent. I like that a lot. That makes the <laughs> things easy. And I can focus on the interesting bits of my problem, not the plumbing. But yeah, I think similarly right now, Rails is boring, stable, known, but I think in a really good way. I think both you and I would probably say that, like, I'm happy to be on the boring, stable, old thing. Yeah. Old. Uh, yeah. Well, we're boring and stable old people, so. Uh. <laughs> oh, oh, too real. Too real. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So we drifted into languages a bit, but yep. that, that's fine. Um, I think Podcasts aren't supposed to be linear, are they? No. Well, Much no... like a circle CI build. We have to yeah. fork and then rejoin. And... <laughs> yes, yes. You have to wait for workers to finish. So yeah, running the thing on Circle CI. Yeah. So are we uh, not doing that anymore? Yeah, I don't think we're doing it on our current client project. Okay. Um, I just kind of assumed <laughs> that we were. You had been there before me. No. I assumed that was the thing that you had done. And that's the, I assumed that was one of the it things. It was a thing that we... So we've been on multiple projects, and it was a thing that we had done on the previous project at this mm-hmm. client. And I think it got undone as part of the move to Circle CI 2. Okay. But... I don't think that that's a limitation of Circle CI too. It's more of you have to consider like when do you want to do this, and and it does like increase build times depending on what you do in your bin setup file. It can unnecessarily increase your build times. I would hope that that wouldn't have to be the case though. Like it could still check out the cache before running bin setup, and then we need to build a database. We can choose whether or not we're migrating or schema loading, which is actually an interesting question in and of itself. I think, mm-hmm. but. I wouldn't expect it to add much. Like running the bin setup is just doing all the things you need to do anyway in order to run the yes. tests. Yes, that's true. Relying on a cache brings into question some things. That uh, <laughs> caching's not a hard problem. It's generally it's it's generally okay. But like, what if a package is no longer available in a thing, right? But you have this cached, so it works. Uh, if a gem has been yanked, 
Or if a gem has been yanked. I don't know what happens in that case. I mean, if I you think have the bundle, it in a cache, your bundle will... St- Ooh, the bundle still succeed if a gem has been yanked and you have it in a cache. I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> oh, fun. But there are other things you can you might be doing, like seeding your database, which might take a while. You also have mm-hmm. to work around, like, uh, I did this locally on the hub project that we have. I think I added bin setup to the to CI, and it was like we had to figure out part of what bin setup does is seed your database with some development data, uh, which then was conflicting with tests that were running and expecting right. a clean database. Mm-hmm. And I'd also removed database cleaner. So I was like, well, I can't just run <laughs> database cleaner at the start. So we actually had to, like, set the environment when you're running bin setup, set the environment to development on CircleCI. And then so when your tests run, they run against test, right? Uh, so they're different, actually different instances of the database without having to like somehow figure out how to clean the database. Run Interesting. Database cleaner, basically. So we avoided having the database cleaner dependency by doing that. Huh. Yeah, so bin setup scripts. Yeah, we like those. Uh, well, okay, <laughs> well, I, I so. Do, I do want to say quickly, though, yes. there becomes a point where, like, your application has so many integrations with things that you can't script them anymore. So, mm-hmm. for example, our current client project has a lot of, like, API keys and various things that we need, and, and there needs to be a decision. And I think it's hard. At some point, you need to decide, like, are we sharing a development key for this thing that we need, or mm-hmm. does everybody have to have their own key? Right. If everybody has to have their own key, can we find a way to programmatically get that for people? If everybody doesn't need their own key and we can share a key, are we comfortable sharing a key that's purportedly only development in Git? Do we want to do that? Mm. Or do we want to use encrypted secrets? So like my preference is, and I haven't used this enough on client projects. I've used it once. I used encrypted secrets on a client project and it was Mm. great because it was like, here's the one secret you need, right? And I can share that with you out of band. So that's a shared, uh, shared encryption key, key yeah. sort yep. of thing? Yep. Okay. And so I share that with you out of band, and now you have access to all the secrets locally. And you can have, I believe, it, it's evolved a bunch. And part of the reason I think not many people use this shared secret stuff is because it's changed a lot. So there was like secrets. In the beginning, there was secrets.yaml, and it was unclear how that differed from environment variables or mm-hmm. whatever. And then there was encrypted secrets, which ran alongside secrets.yaml. And it was like, okay, this is a separate thing, but what do I put in secrets and what do I put in encrypted secrets? And do I have to have both? Can I have both? What happened? Like, what if something's defined in both? Like, how does that work? And now I think in 5.2 and later they went to something they call credentials, which is always encrypted and it's always uh, meant to be well, credentials. Uh, <laughs> and it's always encrypted and always meant to be checked in, things like that. So mm-hmm. I'd like to see people maybe embrace that more if you're in a situation where like there's a bunch of private stuff we need to share in order to get your development environment up and running but I haven't done that outside of a small project yet so so to clarify that. you're saying development there uh, mm-hmm. do you still think the 12 factor app and the environment based config is the uh, 12 factor app just for anyone listening along is sort of a manifesto that came along with Heroku as a platform when it came out it was the I want to say CTO wrote it up 12 points about how to uh, structure your application ideas about one of them being pull your configuration out into the environment and having a repository and being able to push that up and deploy that, and et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, my question to you, Derek, is you said development there when you talked about credentials. So mm-hmm. do you do you think we should go with that also in production or do you think the environment-based thing is still the way to go? I don't know. Um, <laughs> the idea of the environment-based thing is like you can change stuff without doing a deploy, right? That's actually not my interpretation of it. So that's a part of it, but my thinking is it allows you to have multiple instances. So development is different than staging, is different than production. Okay. And if you want, say, a Heroku review app, your pull request is up, you want to be able to get another instance, then that can have something different in the environment. So it means that you've pulled config and credential values outside of the code, which is more of a static thing. 
but conceptually, that's not that different than having a YAML file that has those entries in it, right? And you just use a different YAML file per product, or a YAML file that has different environments defined in it. Oh, can has, you do that in the credential yes, stuff? Yeah. Okay. So conceptually, it's not that different. Gotcha. The difference would be like this is a checked in deployed change versus this is a I can run a config update. Yeah. Um, but when you run a config update, guess what Heroku does? It starts and stops your app again. It right? does. Uh, and sometimes if Heroku's having problems, that can bring your app down. Uh, because like, oh, guess what? I can't start it anymore. <laughs> you're like, ah, sh- I've never experienced that. Um, yeah, I've seen that a couple times. That's rough. So, and generally, they get like they put a warning out, and then they like what happens is that happens very brief period of time, and then they shut down the ability to do any of those operations, right? right? Anything that could potentially take your app offline in a way that is their fault. <laughs> so I don't know. I guess I don't. I don't know. In the project that I was talking about before, where I use the encrypted secret stuff. We did use it in production, but that was because we were deploying to an environment like it was a university environment Mm -hmm. where like I was basically the one managing the thing. And I was like, "Uh, you know, what's easy for me. Uh, I don't want to mess around in this Apache config forever. I'm going to put this one shared token in the Apache config and then I'm just going to check and check things in and deploy it. And it'll also be easier for the person who's not a developer who's taking over this project when I leave to like just do general maintenance to be like, oh, okay, here's I can say like. Once you have the secret, you can run these commands to update the YAML file with the values that you need, like the email address, or I don't think that was actually in there. I don't remember. Anyway, I guess I don't have strong opinions on that. How do you feel? I, I was sort of surprised that you were going in that direction because I felt like the environment-based stuff was one of those, um, like, this is one of our best practices. This is the way we do it. But I, it falls firmly into the camp of strong opinions held loosely. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm perfectly happy to entertain other options. And I think I've, I've certainly run into plenty of things where, like, the app that is running in production is a combination of the source code that lives in this repository, which is backed up and essentially replicated across many developers' machines. It's on GitHub. I feel safe about that. And also these configuration variables, which live on... Heroku's platform somewhere. Mm-hmm. They're sort of out of our control. Mm-hmm. And to even enumerate which ones are active and which ones are not, that's disconnected from the code that is making right. the change. So Lots like, of say, times you see a value in there right. and you change it and it does nothing. It's because the code that referenced that value has not existed for three months. Right. Most <laughs> of the time I see the environment as an append-only uh, namespace. I don't see people <laughs> deleting keys like, oh, we're not using that one anymore. Everyone's sort of scared to do cleanup in there. So mm-hmm. it is this thing that grows and you're like, hmm, there are two different ones that say admin password. And I don't know what that means in either case, but there are also two of them. Which one's the one? And you also get weird things like on Heroku where you see, if you're using like Heroku Postgres, it's like Heroku Postgres purple URL, Heroku Postgres orange URL. And you're like, which one of these is current? Like, because like you get a I believe the one that's current is the one that says database URL. Okay. Well, that's how you can tell. The other ones are like a backup. And if you're doing any sort of transitions. If you're going between Postgres versions and things like that. Or if you're upgrading like the size of your database, Mm -hmm. I think. But again, (laughs) it's sort of, um, it's a weird area to contain that so i would be very happy to entertain if there's a rails blessed new best practice way i'm always willing to entertain new contenders for best practice of the year (laughs) Uh, because i think best practices are terrible when they become dogmatic and when people can't question them but they're incredibly useful in keeping us from having the same conversations over and over and for unloading some of the thought like i don't want to think about a lot of these things every single time i make an app and I guess that's one of the things that coming back to the original question of what do we do and focus on as consultant developers that is slightly different. And I think that view of I want as many decisions already made and and straightforward and determined mm-hmm. outside of the context of the project. I really, really, really want to focus on the unique things that make our clients' application special, that make right. their domain interesting and be able to just put 100% of our focus on that, which I think is why we've stuck with Rails forever because... 
there are lots of other interesting languages and even interesting frameworks, but Rails continues to be an incredibly effective tool for taking ideas and business domains and things like that and getting a product out there without having to deal with a lot of the other stuff, without having to make right. decisions that you don't really care about. Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm pro. Let's, let's try it. Let's try it on our next project. <laughs> so you mentioned like having as many decisions as possible, like already made for you mm-hmm. um, so that you can focus on the particulars of the client, the thing that makes them interesting. And yep. one of the things I've learned through the five years of working here is that so many of the problems are the same problems. And yes. it's a thing I was learning early in my career anyway. But then I went to a company like Akamai, which is like this huge company and is at this huge scale. And it's like, well, clearly our problems are different than other people's problems. And some of them are. Like you have a few unique problems about any business, but most of them are actually the same problem, slightly repackaged or twisted, or sometimes actually those is the exact same problem that I had earlier. And that's been really interesting to learn and also uh, a fun thing to expose clients to where it's like, occasionally they're like, no, but this is different because we Mm -hmm. have this problem because, and you're like, yeah, yeah, it's the same problem. Yeah. Like, like that's not the interesting part. And this one has actually has solutions. Don't worry about it. Like, right. But this other thing that is totally unique to your business is the thing we should be focusing on. Don't worry about this technical thing over here because that's pretty well understood, actually. I think that also maps into how we like to approach projects and approach prioritization. Like we want to focus on the thing that makes them interesting as early as possible. So I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the first thing you'll do is set up user and auth because A, you are the primary developer of clearance and know how to do that real well. But B, pretty much every app's going to need that. Let's just get that one out of the way because it does sort of pave the way for everything else. Right. Once that's in place, transition hard to like, okay, are we doing natural language processing? Cool. I want to spend all of my time on that. Or are we doing video editing? Cool. Let's focus on that technology thing Mm -hmm. and not spend time building out many pages of UI, building out an admin system, building out really anything else that isn't like trying to get to the first even half working version of the unique domain problem. And granted, this is when we're starting a new project as opposed to coming into one. But that idea of, of strong focus on the bits that make you unique with ignoring as much of the other stuff as possible, not not spending our precious cycles on that. Yeah. When I get started, I try for like the simplest thing possible. That mm-hmm. can like, like, here's an app with a page and maybe you can log in because I've decided, you know, we, we know this thing needs users. So you're you just can log real in. good at user. Uh, <laughs> but like, I don't know if you, use, so when's the last time you ran either Rails new or suspenders? Mm. A uh, year, like 18 months now, probably. No, actually, even longer than that. But yeah, a while, like um, two years. I found myself doing it a few times in the last year, maybe, for various projects. Either I'm sure I did some side projects, but an app that like lived on and right. mattered, I think it was two years ago. And I was like, of course, I'm going to use suspenders because that's ThoughtBot's thing. And then I ran it and I was like, there's so much stuff in here I don't need yet. <laughs> and like, I know I'm going to need it, but I don't need it yet and doesn't yeah. need to exist yet. So I, what I ended up doing is like, I end up having this like, really long rails new prod thing where I, I like run rails new and I see the output and I'm like, okay, what's every skip that I can add here? And I basically, <laughs> All of the dash like, dash. I'm like, I guess I'll keep active record and I, I guess, guess I'll keep, I'll keep like, active record. <laughs> like the stuff might need it. that stuff. I know, but like, active, is there a skip flag for active record? Uh, I don't know if there is, but there is for like active job and action yeah. cable and all that stuff. And like, yeah. I know I'm probably going to want active mm-hmm. action job, active job. I've already forgotten which one it is. Uh, I know I'm going to want that eventually, probably, but I also at this point know enough rails to know where to go to add it back right. in. And that's different from the beginning where I didn't know that. So yep. I was like, I'm going to need this someday. So it's going to stay here. Uh, and so I've reached that point of my like 
do the smallest thing possible and then I frequently find myself at the suspenders templates directory where you can yep. see like here's how we set up our spec and oh, okay yeah I want that but I actually don't want these three things I found myself in a similar place where sometimes I'll, I'll use suspenders historically I, I haven't mm-hmm. done this in a while and like particularly I think the SMTP configuration it's like every app needs to send email so we're going to have that as a default thing but you need to generate a secret associated with that or put yep, in credentials yep. or some such thing and as a result your app does not deploy to Heroku on the first pass you have to set those credentials up and it happens to me each time and I'm a little bit frustrated each time mm-hmm. and I get it and I understand the reasons why I think, but I'm not sure of where we're at on this, that Mike Burns in our New York office has been working to actually revise suspenders such that rather than it being a one and done, you initialize your app with this and then it's over, suspenders is like a collection of generators. So there's the SMTP generator, there's the delayed job or the Heroku generator, the whatever. And I love that approach. I was a big fan of it as a proposal and yeah. really glad that Mike did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't tried it and I can see there being a lot of complexity because it's a much easier to hit target of we can generate a new app. Cool. We did it. We generated all the files and mm-hmm. it boots and we're able to even run integration tests around that and make sure Suspenders does what it says. Being able to do that over an existing app that is in an arbitrary state that has been changed is a much, much harder problem. So I understand why we didn't do this for as long as we did, but I'm very happy that that's a direction that we're moving in. And I'm I'm excited to try it, frankly, when I I get around to an app that doesn't already have all the bells and whistles installed. (laughs) So many bells, so many whistles. Yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah, coming back to the base question, let's see, starting. We got bin set up. Um, yeah. We talked a little bit about suspenders and what we're choosing to bring in versus what we're not. Yep. I think one of the other things that we tend to focus on is preventing silos of knowledge. Oh, yeah. Um, a Definitely. lot of situations so, yeah. we come into, there is, oh, well, that person over there in the corner, they're the one who knows all about the X system, the X subsystem within this application. And you know what? There's another ticket for that. Let's just make sure they pick it up this week. Mm-hmm. And we occasionally even find ourselves being that person for a particular topic at a client. And we're pretty purposeful and trying to push that away because we know that we have a shelf life. Mm-hmm. We know that we're going to leave at some point. I mean, everyone's going to leave at some point in the grand scheme of things. We will all depart this mortal coil eventually. <laughs> or even, you know, this this corporate coil, this particular corporate coil that we're in. But yeah. I think overall, that is just such an important thing to share the knowledge, to make sure that more than one person has eyes on a particular piece of code because we want it to be our collective best, not one person's, this is what I decided to write this code like. And ideally, a code base can be more uniform than not. Shouldn't have, a, well, that that whole directory there looks different. It's got four space indent because reasons, but that's fine. Like mm-hmm. Ideally, it's a cohesive system. And ideally, there's not one person that owns a particular piece of it. Yeah, and I've had several conversations with clients where we're calling that out. And we're like, hey, I know that so-and-so knows the ordering system really well. And that's great. And we know that they can get that work done really quickly. But aren't you worried what happens about yeah. when they get another job? Or we need to pull them onto another internal project. Right, or like their expertise is actually needed elsewhere. And now it's like, oh, no, nobody can do anything. It's like, well, you know, we should be pairing on this as much as possible. We should have other people just take things over. It shouldn't be that so-and-so is the only person who can approve these pull requests into this thing uh, long-term anyway. Maybe it's something that could happen over the short term, but it certainly shouldn't be a a modus operandi of the team. So, I, I mean, how do you go about preventing those things? Is it just through forcing the issue? Yes, I think it's, you know, when you're in planning, when you're in retro, that's the time to talk about this and to raise your hand and say, I feel like we're siloing information here. And I think we're, we're heading in that situation. Ideally, it's the silo themselves mm-hmm. that will raise their hand and be like, I feel like I'm the only one who actually knows how this thing works, which is bad. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous for reasons that, you know, we can talk about, but hopefully we all understand and agree mm-hmm. on. 
we should try and avoid that. And then let's make a concerted effort over the next few weeks to avoid that and to share that knowledge out and make sure that that system is well understood and, and maintained by more than one person. It also increases the likelihood that people are going to give quality code reviews yes. on things because they know they'll be working on it, right? Versus mm -hmm. like, well, I don't know. It's so-and-so's code. It's always good. It's yeah. fine. Whatever. It gets the job done, I'm sure. But if you know that like next week there's a ticket in there to do, I don't know, to implement refunds or something like that, and mm -hmm. you look at this and you're like, this is going to make implementing refunds harder. And so you can say like, hey, I know we have this immediate thing we're doing next week. What if we did the, you know, like it just, it just makes you more invested in the outcome, mm -hmm. I guess, of each change because you could be working on that and you could be working on it as well. And I've seen that time and again where you bring somebody new onto the silo into the silo i guess basically <laughs> and the result isn't just that the knowledge of how to do things improves it's just that the actual quality of the stuff that is produced in that area of the code improves yep so we talked about beginnings mm -hmm. and we talked about silos of knowledge right yep. and uh in the immortal words of semisonic every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end so <laughs> that that's that's the lyric I was going for. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we as consultants and <laughs> some of us as uh, employees are coming to the end of a lot of things frequently. Are there certain things you like to do when you reach the end of an engagement? Probably the thing that stands out the strongest, and granted, we just covered this, I think, um, but it's that idea of silos of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Often you've accrued some things. I'm the person who knows how to debug this one area or, or something like that. And so the last, ideally a few weeks, hopefully in most cases we get a few weeks to uh, to wind down a rotation. Mm -hmm. um, and I will spend that time trying to pair almost 100% of the time. Uh, and I've even in some client situations where we had owned more of the code base, we sort of built things as they were hiring a team and then the team came along with us, but we inherently had more knowledge of the system. The last two to three weeks, the rule was my hands were not allowed on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. It was exclusively pairing and exclusively in the passenger seat for the pairing. So that's sort of the extreme version of it, but that general idea feels true. Beyond that, I'm trying to think of technical things. I don't know if there's much technically in this. What I find myself doing is more like, again, towards silos of knowledge, but like, what do I know? What do I do every day? Or what do I do every week or every sprint or whatever yep. the case may be that nobody else has been doing? And how do I make it so that either other people know to do it or it doesn't need to be done anymore? Mm -hmm. So how can I eliminate those little last things that I was doing manually or that I'm the only one doing? And that can be through documentation or it can be through code um, being like, okay, I'm going to write a I'm trying to think of an example, but like I'm going to write a test that catches if we ever do this thing that I've been watching out for. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm the one who comments in every pull request when someone camel cases instead of snake cases. So I'm going to write a test to make sure that we have that consistency. <laughs> I've actually done that one. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, Got to maintain those serializers. Keep them uh, consistent. Yeah. And then there's lots of like on the projects that you've been on longer or uh, for some of us in the audience, uh, employers that you're leaving or whatever, there's often a period of uh, needing to realize that <laughs> you, you're not going to be involved in the decision, like needing to separate yourself from like the things that weren't done, right? Yeah. Like I didn't get this major feature done or like this, this major, not even feature, but this major area of the application that I was building features towards, which is frequently a thing we're doing at ThoughtBot, mm -hmm. isn't shipped yet. I don't know yep. how it ends. And I have really strong feelings on how it should proceed. Yep. But you need to resist the temptation of like, well, let me write this long email about how mm -hmm. I think things should go from here because you have to recognize that like, that's that's not yours anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. This is apropos of nothing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and I think that comes with all the, with all the things. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think a, a variant of that is just early and proactive communication. 
if for some reason we have a deadline, which mm-hmm. someone leaving a project is in a form, a deadline, we try and look at things and say like, oh man, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that we're going to hit that. Or let's start having the conversation now about how we can not necessarily cut scope, because I found that that is a phrase that people recoil at. Uh, <laughs> but what if we were to reprioritize? What if we were to find a group of things that would be great to do, but if we didn't get them by launch day, by whatever that deadline is, right. that we could feel okay with ourselves? Let's, right. let's really push hard on that and make sure that nothing that we're doing is not critical. And I... I'm generally not a fan of deadlines, but I have found that they can be beneficial in forcing that conversation because in the absence of some external forcing function, it's really hard to say like, no, 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 we we don't actually need an admin right now. Like I can do the things in the command line for Mm -hmm. the time being. This is not a forever solution, obviously. But Mm -hmm. for right now, we're only doing one thing a week that needs that sort of backend support. I can just do it. So Mm -hmm. let's not build the admin right now. And instead, let's focus on, again, the unique differentiator, the thing that your customers will see. And so someone rotating off a project is just another form of we have a deadline to ship a feature or reprioritize or share that knowledge or do one of those things. But I think it forces those conversations earlier, which I think overall is just a good thing. Yeah. I think the thing that I always come back to when winding down a project, and and particularly when it's a ThoughtBot project where other ThoughtBot people are going to be coming on board next is like, and this can happen at your at anybody's work really, where you're, you're changing teams or uh, mm-hmm. the team's growing and you're going to go on to this other project or something like that. It's really thinking about how do I set the next person up for success? Mm. Like I talked about, like, what are the things I'm doing or what are the things that they need to know that I didn't get a chance to do? Yep. <laughs> right. What are the what are the sharp edges around here? Like, you know, here are the blind spots in the test suite, right? <laughs> that yep. we didn't get a chance to fix. Should you trust the test suite? Should you not trust the test suite? Things like that. Um, at ThoughtBot, we're actually often in a, in a position to do some like longer term, like here are some longer term recommendations. Like a lot of the projects that we get not necessarily the ones where we're building a specific thing, but the projects where we get where we are working with a team to improve the way that team works, either the skills in that team or some processes that we think that, that, that they could follow. We're often left in a situation where you actually do get the chance to say, like, here's some recommendations mm-hmm. I would make going forward. And I've often been asked for like, hey, how do you like, you know, you've been around for a while. What do you think about the way we run project management and things like that? So I think it's important to be realistic and truthful in those, but also not like (laughs) you hear stories of like, basically, that's basically an exit interview, right? (laughs) And you hear stories of people being like, well, let me tell you about working with so-and-so. Let me tell you what really grinds my gears. Right, right. So don't do that. But like, do give the pointed advice that can really set people up for. Constructive. Yes, be constructive. Be more constructive with your feedback. Do you have anything else you want to talk about today? Uh, oh, we have to talk about your Ruby bug. We didn't my Ruby start bug. with it. All right. Quick summary of the Ruby bug. The, this is, I believe, the first experience that I've had in my career of a legitimate bug in the Ruby interpreter. This is a Ruby language level bug. And worst of all, this wasn't like a seg fault where it's just like Ruby said no and was done. Ruby silently broke my program. So the nature of what I was doing is I was building up a, a test uh, where I had an XML document that's sort of the input. And the XML document had a very well-defined structure. It's an external to medical-related processing document. So it's a very well-defined, standardized document. So I had built a method that took arbitrary keyword arguments to create a variant of this document that had the particular value in the particular XML node. So basically, it's like we have an XML fixture, yep. and we want to be able to override some values in that XML fixture. Right. For so the any number of 30 different attributes about this file. And right. for any given test, I only care about one of those values, mm-hmm. and the rest of them should be in a sane default. 
So it was sort of like I was building factory bot type thing, but for an XML string. Mm -hmm. And so I was going along. Everything was going great. I felt a little bit weird because I had this method that had this growing signature of 20 and then 25 and 30 keyword arguments, each with a default value. Which, but pause for a second, that is crazy. Yes, that's crazy. <laughs> but I kept looking at it being like, I don't have a better answer. I talked to Josh Clayton, uh, who knows all about factory bot. And I was like, can I do this with the factory bot? And he's like, no, that's that's not a thing. Uh, <laughs> or at least we didn't have a quick answer. So yeah, I built my own ad hoc solution and it was working. It was working wonderfully actually. Until one day I added a new attribute and I was running the test and I was getting something, some method, nil does not support it. So I had right. a nil and I was like, oh, where'd the nil come from? That's weird. And I started chasing it down and it just didn't make any sense. It was one of those very much a Heisen bug where as I started to look at it, it would vanish and mm -hmm. things like that. But what turned out to be the issue was that the 33rd keyword argument <laughs> with a default value that I added to my method caused Ruby to drop the default value for every single one of the keyword arguments which was surprising. <laughs> uh, it also did so silently. So, so just 32, 32 is fine. We're fine. All those default values. What about 34? Great. 34 also Okay, also so it's not, it's not yeah, just It was exactly just like I crossed the threshold. Okay. 32 is also an interesting number being a power of two. So I imagine that has some meaning in the world. Mm -hmm. But uh, I hopped into our Ruby channel and uh, the ThoughtBot Slack and I was like, um... I feel like I'm going crazy here. Can someone <laughs> confirm? And uh, I peaked Joe Ferris, our CTO's interest. He was like, ooh, okay, well, hold on. And then he went off and he verified on his machine. But then someone else said, no, 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 it works fine for me. Yeah. And we determined that Ruby 2.4, perfectly fine. Ruby 2.5 has this bug. Yeah. Ruby 2.6, the preview that's out now, does not have it. So they fixed it since. And there's a bug that's open on Ruby Lang or wherever the bug tracker is. But uh, we were able to find that. But it took a while to, to track this one down, particularly because of the silent nature of the error. Yeah, I'm going to admit, when I saw that one come through, I was doing something, so I wasn't able to pick it up and like let me yeah. mess with it. But I was like... Oh, this will be fun to see what Chris is missing. Like, <laughs> like, I really clearly was, there's a bug here. I really wanted there to be some like, oh, you're just you forgot a comma or some like I was doing something stupid, but it turned out no. And I had to change the method such that I accepted an options hash and then I was fetching from that and I tried to do a same lookup of like this is a valid key in the options hash that I'm merging a default. It just ended up with a ton of plumbing to replace mm -hmm. keyword arguments with default values. So it made me all the more appreciative that we now have keyword arguments with default values yeah. as of, what was that, Ruby 2.0, I want to say? Maybe 2.1? Might have been 2.1, that sounds and then two, right. And I think 2.2 added required keyword arguments, I think. Hmm. So you just put the colon without yep. a value, and then it's a required value. Like It's great that yours resulted in an actual bug, because I, my experience with those is usually it's my fault, uh, which is what I expected to happen to you. Like I remember I had one that also piqued Joe's interest years ago where I was like, I am trying to run a test that says expect false to equal yeah. true, and it is passing every time. I believe I was with every you for this one. Every <laughs> single time. And like Joe was like, I have to see this. So I'm running a whole bunch. He's like, wow, look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, what do you have for like setup and stuff? Do you have any before blocks? I'm like, no, there's no before blocks or anything like that. But then it was like, oh, wait a minute. Around. There's an around filter that I forgot to call example.runin. So it didn't actually run the example. It just like did the thing that was supposed to be before and after yep. without actually running the thing. This is where my belief that every spec should require at least one assertion. Otherwise, it's a failed spec. 
yeah. uh, which is somewhat heretical, apparently, because no one else seems to agree. But those times <laughs> where I've forgotten to actually write the assertion because I'm a bad programmer, apparently. Well, and there are times where you're doing, you're doing like a feature test, and so you do some TDD, and you're right. like, oh, and then you click on the thing. And yeah. you're like, oh, my test passed. And you're like, yeah. that's just because you created that blank page. Or in like, your case, <laughs> it was like it would have been very clear of no assertions, therefore failure. You would have been like, no assertions? I disagree. Right. And then track that down. But instead, you were like, why is it passing? And I remember you were just like, two equals two. Yeah. Got it. Two equals three. How does it still pass? <laughs> Uh, real crazy making day. But right. again, like you didn't have to change your code. You just had to write the correct code. <laughs> yes. You were missing one line and then it fixed. <laughs> yes. I had to rewrite the whole thing and it's so much messier and noisier now. Yeah. So I thought about updating. Did you put a to... comment that says like uh, revert yes. when we get to 2.6 or something? I never write comments, but I wrote a paragraph comment that said, I'm sorry for what I have done here, but it's not <laughs> my fault. The Ruby made me do it. Um, I thought very briefly about upgrading to Ruby 2.6, the preview, but I was like, nope, never mind. That's a crazy thing to do here. I'll <laughs> yeah. just make it work now. It'll be out at Christmas time, so, you know. <laughs> Merry Christmas to us all. Uh, all right, let's wrap up. Sounds good. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 165. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, which would be much appreciated, or you can share it with your friends on Twitter, which would be fantastic. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.